Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we're going to be talking to the Labour MP Rachel Reeves who's written a study looking at all the women who've come to Westminster in the last hundred years since the first one arrived. But before our main interview with her, I'm joined here in Westminster, fittingly enough, by our digital editor Stephanie Boland um, to discuss a sort of prior question, Stephanie, which is what is an MP anyway, really? What's the job? <laughs> yeah, we're going completely back to basics this week after um, another another busy political week. I'm quite confident whatever time you're listening to this, it will have been another busy political week. Um, what is? They'll still be MPs. They'll still, we, we hope, unless things have really gone off the rails. Um, I mean, what is an MP is something that sounds like a very simple question, but it's actually more complex than you might think and also is responsible for a lot of the current rifts in our politics, differing ideas about what an MP should be. So it's quite easy to think of an MP as um, in a representative democracy, somebody who goes up to speak for a certain area and represent the concerns of those constituents. And that's if you go on the government website, if you look at guides to how democracy works in the UK, that, that comes up again and again. And I guess that's how they spend their time. They represent their community, they listen to the problems in in the community and their surgeries and so on so yes as you say mps hold surgeries and they speak to their constituents but when you ask whose views they're meant to be reflecting actually you see some real conflict around this so for instance should they be trying to bring across the views of all of their constituents should they be reflecting the views of their local party members who are maybe the people who got them their seat in the first place should they be following the party line from the whips um, and is there a place for their their own conscience in the voting lobby? Chris Bryant, I know, recently drew on on Edmund Burke writing in the Staggers. A wannabe speaker, it should <laughs> be said, <laughs> trying to trying to promote this idea of exercising one's own judgment, and that you know I've spoken to MPs who were Remainer MPs in Leave seats who have said, I know that more of my constituents are Leave voters than Remain voters, but I, under my own conscience, don't feel I can vote for this, and that introduces some complications as to what your representative is meant to be doing. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Like, the, the, the British um, electoral system gets slagged off roundly, generally, by kind of liberals and, and, and so-called progressives. But the one thing it really does do, uh, in a way that most other electoral systems don't, is it um, links a person with a fairly small 
community. House of Commons, people think it's commoners as opposed to lords, but it's, I think it's communities historically. Um, but as you say, as soon as you get at all specific about this, um, unless you imagine a community has a kind of general will, it gets a bit messy. And I remember like the first time it really hit me how powerful that was, was seeing the Sinn Féin MPs get elected uh, in West Belfast or wherever it was and say, oh yeah, we'll represent you on like, you know, uh, as in the surgeries and on social matters if you need representing. But obviously if you're a unionist, we can't represent you politically and being quite blunt about it. Um, very few other MPs who aren't Sinn Féin would, would, would be that upfront about the fact they're just not going to represent some of their people but as you as you're kind of inferring this happens all the time right there's no mp who can keep every constituent happy on on whatever the issue is um, it is always really frustrating talking about Sinn Féin in Westminster because you so often come across somebody who goes but they're not representing their constituents properly and actually in that case Sinn Féin is representing their voters who don't want an mp who will go and take their seat in in Westminster in the in the British Parliament um, they're Republican voters, but obviously they're, not they're the minority. Yes, of, sorry, I should say they're voters as in the people who have voted for them. Um, but you're right, that issue gets replicated in all sorts of places. And so much of the tension that keeps going on in the Labour Party in particular, back and forth, and that seems to happen in this really cyclical way, is, is an MP somebody who should be very beholden to the local party and should be following the party line on things, or are they not? And this isn't kind of one single faction thinks one thing and one thinks another, but where you stand on deselection, for instance, may have quite a lot to do with whether or not you think MPs are representatives of the party. They owe their seat to the party and therefore it's their obligation to do do what the party's promised to people or whether you think they should be able to bring their own judgment in as somebody like Chris Bryant does. I mean, what I find fascinating at the moment, there's always been a kind of Labour, as there's always been a trade union awkward squad, so there's always been a Labour awkward squad which used to be at one time you know held in check by whips who were former sergeant majors and whatever but like it was there and you had to deal with it if you're a Labour government there were whole years in the 1950s um, I found out recently from uh, Phil Cowley who's the great expert on these things where there was not a single Conservative MP who rebelled on anything um, that the government was doing um the, the local parties were very big then. They were vibrant, if you count having a lot of cake sales as vibrant. Um, but they didn't influence policy. And now what you're seeing, as well as the fact that they're choosing the leaders and they're about to choose the next prime minister, is they really think they can tell their MPs what to do on Brexit in particular, don't they? Which is a really interesting thing with the Conservatives, like you say, because I guess Labour's always had that tension of being both the political outpost of the trade union movement and being you know, a Westminster party. So it's always been a bit bit Yana's face that way. But to see how the Conservatives are changing, you know, what is a Conservative club? Should they be able to dislike their MPs, which is now becoming a debate in the Tories as well. Um, but it's a bit like it was in Labour in the early 80s, because at least Labour membership's now quite big, but in the early 80s it was these uh, men normally in anoraks and thick glasses who knew all the rule book, telling everyone what to do. And... um. It, it looks a bit like it might be that in the Conservatives now, doesn't it? Very small and atypical memberships. Yeah, and there's these kind of half-ironic calls to do Conservative entryism to try and sort out the next Prime Minister to to be more beneficial because they have so few members, people, or relatively few members, people think they'd be quite easy to overwhelm. But <laughs> whether or not there'll actually be mass entryism into the Tory party to influence the next head of, head of <laughs> government, I don't know. But apparently there's just been a slight um, tick up I read recently that they are 
like there are people, you know, whether they're out and out entryists or whether they're just people thinking that they quite fancy voting for Boris Johnson or whoever it would be, um, that that's finally persuaded some people to vote. Uh, join the Conservatives at a time when it's very unfashionable indeed. Well that touches on another interesting question and one that we'll hear from um, Rachel a bit later about women in Parliament which is which constituents are most active in in their local area even if they're not party members and who are MPs most able or willing to listen to so Rachel Reeves makes the case that when you put women in Westminster it's not just a kind of symbolic gesture towards equality but that women put through different policy either because they're more attentive to the needs of women constituents on things like childcare and and equal pay questions or because perhaps constituents trust them with those issues more Um, so who you listen to and who shows up to you know badger you on different issues is always going to be contingent so <laughs> maybe we're just going to back to the fact that representation is is always kind of a fraught term yeah i mean um i mean rachel wrote a bit for us didn't she and, and the one that right from the very beginning i think it's 1919 isn't it when nancy Astor rocks up and then the first liberal woman three or four years later whose name i can't remember i think in a by-election but within a couple of years of them both being there they're working on these reforms to divorce law so that if you get divorced, the child isn't just the property of the father, which it had been up until then. I mean, sort of unbelievable, but these are sort of thoughts that wouldn't have occurred to the 100% male um, House of Commons before. I think that's Rachel's argument. And we see this coming up now, not only with our own changes to divorce laws, and I don't know if you've been following the Tinney Owens case and the idea that perhaps we should have no-fault divorce in this country, which we don't currently, um, but with things like, for instance, how many MPs are landlords compared to the general population, and people who work on housing reform point out that that makes it quite difficult if you're trying to talk to a house where people have a personal stake in what the rule is around second homes and, and rental regulation. Well, of course, you've got a big flick of that with the expenses. But when you talk to people a long way from Westminster, another thing that comes up is pay. It's a very it's, it, This is a conversation that's completely different when you have it with MPs who are all convinced that they could be earning megabucks in the city, which I'm not always 100% sure is true. Um, and you talk to people on very ordinary wages a long way from London and they think that like one of the most important things that MPs uh, should have is that they should be earning an average wage. I'm... Um, I don't know what you do about that because in a sense like if you did give them an average wage it would be a less desirable job but when I put this to people outside of London they say well yeah but you'd have people who are more purely publicly motivated and they'd be more representative in the economic dimension and that's the most important dimension of all. What you say about what you think of as an average wage is so interesting as well because this happens around journalism all the time that people think of journalism as not particularly well-paid profession um, which I I, th- I think it is. I think you can earn far more than the average wage working as a, a journalist in London. Um, so I guess those points of reference are always going to be different compared yeah. to where you're coming from. You were talking about um, the numbers of people in Parliament there and Nancy Astor and those first MPs. What about this idea of how many MPs we have? Because we're doing boundary reform investigations at the moment, aren't we? Is that October mm. we're feeding back on that? Oh, I've lost track. But I, I, I think there's a real... Um, the the process, as I understand it, is that um, under the Cameron government, they legislated so um, that they've got everything ready it's to just isn't press it? So is that a switch. On 600 MPs will cap it. 
that it would go to 600 with a different map and it would be quite forcibly arranged so it was like they were all the same size apart from maybe the top of Scotland and so on. And, um, but, big but now that we're in a minority parliament, is that they have to vote through the plan as it stands, yes or no. Otherwise, I think they're back to legislation. Does, does that sound right to you? I'm, I'm, I haven't looked it up before the conversation, but I think it's a kind of... Yes or no, and it's probably going to be a no uh, because, um, like, when you've got no overall majority trying to persuade 650 MPs that you want 50 less of them is pro- probably, probably quite hard to Probably difficult to do. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because there's not... It's not as it is in the US where, obviously, gerrymandering is still a big issue, so this isn't to say their system's perfect, but they at least have a relative formula from the size of the the seat to the number of people who will vote in that seat whereas here in the UK you can have a constituency with um, electorates of vastly different sizes is that right yeah I mean they're not I think it's meant to be reviewed every 10 years on a on a rolling basis we did something in the magazine this time about the number of residents so if you go somewhere like I don't know Westminster North or East Ham where there's lots of immigrants um uh, or places just where there's more children, of course, who can't vote. You know, the number of people in a place will be quite different from the number of um, people who can vote. So that is definitely an inequality. But there's also just, I mean, the traditional thing that used to be said is um, uh, every 10 years people move out of the town centre into the wards of the suburbs. And so you reduce the number of inner city Labour seats every 10 years and increase the number of ones um Tory ones maybe in the in the suburbs but now the politics seems to have changed so much and people are young people are moving back into the cities I I don't really know what the um standard effect of a review would be anymore in the way that like in the 80s and early 90s the conventional wisdom was it would always work that way didn't you do some work on this with the um the population per MP in in different places so in Wales it's 78,000 or whatever in London it's 120,000 so that correlation of of people to parliamentarians isn't fixed. Yeah, I mean, it's different still in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland a bit, although in Scotland it used to be spectacularly um, different um, uh, up until about 10 years ago. Uh, until um, the Cameron reformers haven't come in, there was still this idea of the House of Commons, the House of Communities, if you like, um, that the boundaries would have respect for natural borders. So the Isle of Wight seems like one natural seat and is the biggest uh, population I think at one point anyway of, of, of any seat in England um, and likewise you know the Western Isles up in Scotland Gaelic speaking quite a different sort of place um, was its own seat even though um, it uh, had far far fewer people than the Isle of Wight um, but they're both very natural communities um, and the Cameron plan was more or less to get rid of that and say that in quite an automated way um, the um, constituencies would just be drawn to equalise size of electors if not of residents because immigrants and children and so on would still count differently. See that's so interesting in terms of thinking of if a local area has a has a distinct character or like you say a natural community. I know in the local elections we saw this big rise in independent candidates gaining council seats um, which seems to reveal a really similar tension where if the you know, if the national narrative isn't that strong and perhaps it's not with the two main parties both tied up in confusion over Brexit, then these local issues really do come to the fore and people are, are quite willing to vote on them. I think it's very easy as a, a journalist or an MP, um, probably not as an MP because you have to go back to your, your seat out of Westminster, but particularly a journalist based in Westminster, 
to um, underestimate how much the electorate are clued into what's happening in their local politics. What I'm finding interesting in chatting about this, and I must shut up quite soon and let you get on to talking to Rachel, but is like when you stop and think about it, just how many different sides um, the traditional assumptions about an MP that was more or less voted in by a community because it was more or less a Labour or Tory community and then it would roll over and accept that it would therefore toe the more or less Labour or Tory party line. How many different sides that's under attack from? Because um, you've got um, social media giving, you know, MPs from, um, I don't know, uh, David Lammy, Jess Phillips, lots of these people who are kind of quite big personalities on social media in their own right and just a sense that people aren't going to be boxed in anymore. You've got um, uh, the party members like, like who now control the leadership and that's giving them a different sort of stake in politics to what they would ever expected in the past particularly on the on the Tory side um and then you've also got interestingly tech which at the same time is building up the kind of Jess Phillipses and the David Lammies and whoever else is also um allowing electors who want to to find out um, a great deal more about what's going on in Parliament. And I was talking to some tech guy the other day who was saying he's going to set up this WYSI website which will allow all of us on our mobile phones to see um, not only what MPs are voting on and when, but put it in plain English what it means, every amendment, do you want this, like, you know, multi-house compromise, whatever it is, explain what that is, yes or no, and then tag the data to where people are voting. And so MPs will quite soon be able to do which they could always reconcile their constituency in their conscience previously by saying well I think you know in my part of the world people agree with me but they're increasingly getting live data saying no we don't mate and so um <laughs> this this discussion really is going to run and run but maybe it's time to narrow it back down a bit Steph and concentrate on that one representation uh dilemma we were talking about which is about society and about gender which I think is where you pick up with um Rachel isn't it Yes, before we get full-on existential crisis over Nicholas Soames' use of hashtags, <laughs> maybe we should um, move on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On. 
You're listening to the Prospect Podcast here from the heart of Westminster, where I'm joined by Rachel Reeves, MP. Um, let's start by why you decided to write this book. We've had recently Nan Sloan's book on Labour women and various autobiographies and biographies of women politicians, including your own on Alice Bacon. Why did you decide to do something that's a little bit more of a survey? Well, as you said, two and a half years ago, I published my biography on Alice Bacon, who was the first female MP in Yorkshire and the only woman to have represented any of the Leeds constituencies until I was elected until in 2010. 40 years, all eight constituencies in Leeds were represented by uh, men. And so I wrote her biography. And in writing that, I felt that too many women have been effectively written out of our political history and so many remarkable women whose stories should be told and should be known just weren't and so that's where the genesis of this book the idea came from and for the last two and a half years or so I've been researching interviewing finding out a little bit more about the women in the last 100 years who have shaped our political and parliamentary life. It does feel like there's a huge amount of work that's gone into this book and, and loads of fantastic anecdotes. Was it important for you to go cross-party as well? Yes, it absolutely was. And I'm not saying it was always easy. Uh, certainly writing about Margaret Thatcher for me was the hardest part of this book because, you know, I went into politics because I disagreed with the direction she was taking our country in and, and you know, from an early age I identified with the Labour cause and against what, what she was doing. But... Um, I don't think it's possible to write a history of 100 years of women in Parliament and all the battles fought, often collectively, and some over a number of, of years, that you can do that without talking about the MPs from right across the political spectrum. And, of course, the first woman to take her seat, whether we like it or not, was a Conservative. And uh, and the, the two women Prime Ministers we've had have both been Conservative MPs. So I think you'd lose a lot if you were writing a political history of, of, uh, of, uh, of 100 years of women in Parliament and only chose to speak about one party. You mentioned Nancy Astor there, who's the first woman to take her seat. Actually, in editing the wonderful piece you wrote for Prospect off the back of this book, we had a moment of editorial confusion between the first woman MP and the second MP. Is that something people often trip up on? Yes, you have to be very careful with your language. So the first um, woman to be elected to Parliament was Constance Markovitz in 1918, but she stood for Sinn Féin, and as is the tradition of that party, she didn't take her seat in Parliament. She was also in prison for high treason at the time of her election so even if she had have wanted to take her seat it might have been a little bit tricky so the first woman to take her seat in parliament was Nancy Astor in 1919 and that's where this book starts because the book is about the impact that women have had in Westminster over the last 100 years so I think it's right to start uh, with her because she was the first woman to take her seat and I speak a lot in the book about what that moment was actually like you know, there were there were male MPs on her own side who tried to physically block Nancy Astor from getting to her seat. She said that her male colleagues would have rather had a rattlesnake in the chamber rather than her. And I think she was almost certainly right because Nancy Astor was beginning to break up the all-male cosy club that existed in Westminster for so many hundreds of years. And so that's really where this book begins. It must feel quite energising to work on a story like that while you're going into the palace every day and kind of have this, this, this history 
idea going around in your head at the same time? Yes, well, a big moment um, for me was, um, and a really special moment for me, was in February um, last year, 2018, where all the women in Parliament today gathered in Central Lobby with the Prime Minister, with Harriet Harman, with um, women from across the political spectrum, where we, it was the 6th of February, it was the centenary of some but not all women winning the right to vote for the first time. And we stood there wearing our uh, purple, white and green uh, rosettes and the colours of the, the, the suffragettes. And there were 209 of us there. And you do realise how far we've come. We've still got a lot, a long way to go until we get uh, true equality where we have a 50-50 parliament. But that was a big moment, uh, reflecting on the change that we've seen in 100 years. 100 years ago, um, no women were in parliament. And today, there are now 210 of us because of the by-election in Newport West a couple of weeks ago. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about Thatcher, because as you mentioned in the book, one of the criticisms of Margaret Thatcher and of other Conservative women is that they're women in Parliament, but not supporters of women. And I remember that very striking moment where Glenda Jackson spoke about Thatcher and said she was a woman, but not on my terms after her death. Um, but you suggest the relationship someone like Thatcher had to, to power and to femininity and to feminism is a little bit more complex. I think so. I mean, the, the 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 easy caricature is that you know Margaret Thatcher um, pulled up the ladder behind her. In all the years that she was prime minister, only one other woman served in her government, and that was Baroness Young. And she didn't survive for very long, and was replaced by a man as leader in the House of Lords. And there were women, particularly women like Linda Chalker, who was number two at the Foreign Office uh, for a number of years, who probably deserved a seat at the cabinet table, but Margaret Thatcher didn't give her one. Other women like um, Virginia Bottomley and Gillian Shepherd, who were appointed to the cabinet by John Major after Margaret Thatcher stood down, who, you know, should probably have been brought into that, that top team a little bit uh, earlier uh, on. However, you know, the challenges that Margaret Thatcher faced on her way to Downing Street as a woman were immense. She went for many parliamentary selections before she was eventually selected in Finchley and Golders Green. One selection meeting she went to in Maidstone, the feedback was that she was an excellent candidate, but that she hadn't given sufficient thought of how she was going to combine being a mother and a member of parliament. And you just can't imagine any man being told he hadn't given sufficient thought about how he was going to combine being a father and a member of parliament. And so those are the sorts of uh, barriers and challenges that she faced in getting to parliament. She was then hugely underestimated by her own party, who assumed that somebody more serious would come along um, in the leadership contest and even when she was elected leader didn't think she was actually going to become prime minister and from the labour benches as well Harold Wilson is somebody I hugely uh, admire and respect but um, he used to speak very condescendingly to Margaret Thatcher calling her my dear for example and so you know she did face a huge amount of misogyny and, and prejudice as a woman in Parliament. And perhaps in some way she compensated for that by excluding other women. I, I'm not saying it was right, but I think there's something maybe more complicated. 
I interviewed quite a few of the women who she worked with in, in government, including Gillian Shepherd and um, Edwina Curry and Linda Chalker, and also Cheryl Gillan, who's still a member of parliament today and was a cabinet minister under David Cameron. And, and she said that it was because of Margaret Thatcher that she stood for parliament in the first place, that she was sitting next to her at a dinner. And Margaret Thatcher said, you know, you should stand for parliament. We need more people like you there. And again, Virginia Bottomley tells a story about how she fought a by-election for the Conservatives in the early 1980s and lost it. Uh, and the next day, Margaret Thatcher phoned her up and said, you know, what a shame, but don't give up. And she then put herself forward and did get elected. So the idea that she didn't have a concern for other women, I, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. It does speak to this bigger debate that runs through your book and that I know you've spoken about previously over whether getting women in politics is de facto good for women or... You know, there's certainly no guarantee that women who go into politics will necessarily have feminist politics. And as we've seen with the treatment of women like Diane Abbott, they might have other blind spots and prejudices. But you're very keen to make the case that having women in the House does change policy and does change the type of, of legislation that gets made. I think it's just undeniable when you look at the evidence and you look at the policies that have been introduced in the last 100 years and, and, and where they originated from. So uh, the first uh, piece of, was described as the first piece of feminist legislation was in 1925 when Margaret Wintringham, the second woman to take her seat in Parliament, uh, working together with Nancy Astor, introduced legislation on the equal guardianship of children. And that uh, legislation uh, meant for the first time that Margaret Mothers had rights over their children in the cases of separation or divorce. Up until 1925, um, children were the property of their father, and women lost all access to their children uh, in the cases of separation and divorce. And, and Margaret Wintringham, when she stood up in that debate, asked the male MPs to do a mental somersault and imagine themselves in the position where they desperately desired the custody of their own child but were denied it. And she did that very powerfully, but she did it from a woman's perspective. And a woman's perspective was not something that was normal to be heard in the Houses of Parliament. And that's similar on a whole range of issues, uh, whether it was family allowances and the debate about whether they should be paid to the uh, mother or the father. Uh, a similar debate happened on child benefit and on tax credits, uh, on equal pay. If you look at the people who have led reform on those issues, issues that directly affect uh, 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 women, then it has been women that have put those issues on the political agenda, campaigned for them and changed the law. So I think having more women in Parliament has brought a wider uh, uh, array of, of views and experience into politics that was lacking before. Harriet Harman, in her own autobiography, talks about uh, speaking in Parliament about the provision of childcare for children during the summer holidays. And she was told it wasn't a political issue. And she was laughed at by uh, colleagues on both sides of the House. And the truth is, today, the political parties compete with each other to have the best offer on childcare to support working parents, and, uh, and rightly so. But these issues didn't become political issues, didn't become mainstream issues by chance. And they became mainstream issues because women put them on the political uh, agenda. More women in Parliament has created a sisterhood of cheerleaders for these issues. And, and, and now um, areas that have been neglected for far too long are, are areas of political debate and, and contest for the main political parties. You do also talk about another example from Harriet Hartman where she writes about Claire Short and Anne Pettifor and this idea that you can have women MPs from 
different political traditions who come together because they find common cause over these questions. Um, it shouldn't feel shocking to say women can have different political views and get along on some things. But Yes, and there's wonderful examples of that, r- you know, really right through the book, um, starting with, with with equal guardianship. Of course, Margaret Wintringham was a, a liberal and Nancy Astor was a conservative MP, but they found common cause. The same was the case on equal pay. In the 1940s, women MPs sent, set up something called the Equal Pay Campaign Committee. And from Labour, Edith Summerskill was probably the key figure in it. But from the Conservatives, Mavis Tate, Irene Ward and Thelma Kasselik here uh, were big players. And and Barbara um, Castle, when she introduced the equal pay legislation in 1970, paid tribute to uh, the Conservative women who in the 1940s had campaigned, much to the displeasure of Prime Minister Winston Churchill, um, on these issues. So very often you found um, women MPs finding common cause. And I think, you know, in a way it's summed up by what Jo Cox said in her maiden speech that we have more in common uh, with each other than that which divides us. And certainly the history of 100 years of women in Parliament has been women working together. I think in the early years, some of that was because women MPs in all parties felt um, ostracised or marginalised by colleagues in their own parties and and often found uh, friendship and, and, and support from other women in Parliament, even if they weren't from the same political parties. And today, that that, that tradition still uh, exists, in, in part because there are still a number of issues uh, where you don't have real equality. On issues like pay, for example, where women are paid on average 18% less than men, where you're still more likely to be the victim of domestic violence if you're a woman, where the majority of childcare and, and housework is still uh, uh, carried out by women, where you don't have a equal access to maternity and paternity uh, leave. And so uh, women in Parliament still work together to achieve change from women outside of Parliament. And, and that's a good thing. We need more of that in politics, not just from women, but from men as well. I wanted to ask you about that and if there is this sense of solidarity between women in Westminster, because you do also quote Diane Abbott, who's the first black woman MP, so has faced kind of difficulties on, on different, coming from different perspectives, but saying that there was a what are sometimes called the Blair's Babes of 1997 weren't necessarily very sisterly to her and that she wrote letters welcoming them to Parliament and didn't get a lot of responses. Do you think that there is more of a sense today of women in Parliament working together and overcoming some of their different perspectives? Well, I I think it's always... um you know, being the case that, um, you know, whether you're a man or a woman in, in Parliament, you come in in your political party and your own political um, um, traditions and um, overtures to create a, a woman's party, for example, in the, in the 1920s uh, um, wasn't successful. Uh, and and, and um, I think it was... Ellen Wilkinson, or maybe it was Margaret Bonfield, but one of the early Labour women MPs said um, that um, as Labour MPs, you um, your, your first priority was working class uh, families, their men um, included. And so, you know... <laughs> I don't want to push the limits too far on the arguments that, you know, women found more in common with each other than they did with their own political parties. It's certainly the case in, in the early years that they uh, um, often found greater support. But, um, you know, p- party politics is still, um, you know, very much alive for, for women MPs in Parliament. And the story about Diane Abbott um, and my interview with, with her, actually, was was really fascinating and eye-opening uh, to me because she wasn't somebody, even though she's in my own political party, 
party, somebody who I knew well, and I feel I knew her a lot better after interviewing her. But she told me that she wrote to um, all of the newly elected Labour women in 1997, um, but only one of them wrote back. And she said uh, that they certainly weren't sisters. But she also described them as a a, a, a group of uh, um, Blairite fangirls. I thought that was a pretty disappointing uh, language from um from Diane Abbott. But I also, you know, understand that, you know, she didn't feel that perhaps she had the support from, from the women in, in her own uh, uh, party. And, you know, she really was and, and, and is a trailblazer. You know, in 1987, the first black woman to be elected to, um, to, to Parliament and those sort of intersections between, between being a minority as a woman and being a minority as being um, a, a black MP, I think were really, really challenging. And she said, in a way, it was easier for her than the black male MPs because she really was, um, you know, standing and out and it didn't take long for you know the doorkeepers and the police to recognize her um as being uh, uh, an mp but um you know she's had to to fight to make her voice heard on a on a whole range of uh, um of issues over the years she's been an mp and i think at the last election she received something like a quarter of all the abuse uh, doled out to members of parliament and um i know from talking to her that that's something that she has struggled with uh and and does find difficult to deal with but not just for herself but also for her office who have to you know see these emails and uh, and, and and posts on social media every day uh, including rape and, and death threats and you know they're becoming far too commonplace in our political life and you know there has been a poisoning I think of our political debate in the last three years and a lot of that poisoning has um, been felt by the women in, in parliament who are um, I think something like four times more likely to be the uh, victims of, of abuse uh, on social media than our male counterparts and that's got to change because if it doesn't we're going to deter a future generation of people uh, of young women putting themselves forward for, uh, for public service and, and political leadership and that'd be a huge loss. I actually wanted to ask you about that because I remember I think it was the Amnesty report on treatment of women MPs and journalists on social media and they actually had to take Diane Abbott out of some of the calculations because her the abuse she received skewed the results so much but they did show that this is something that particularly women MPs are facing all of the time and I mean we've also had things we're talking about Me Too in Parliament at the moment there's been issues around pairing and, and childcare which you talk about being an issue way back when in your book we're still seeing this with something like Joe Swinson's um, child recently is there a, a push to kind of achieve professionalisation on this front and do more to look after women MPs or have we still got quite a way to go? We've got a way to go, but um, it's certainly improved since um, Helen Heyman was the first um, woman MP to have a baby while serving as an MP back in 1976. And politically, there probably couldn't have been a worse uh, time for an MP to have a child because um, Labour's majority, and uh, Helen Heyman was a Labour MP, Labour's majority was wafer thin and falling and pairing had been suspended. So eight days after giving birth, uh, Helen Heyman was back in Parliament voting. And of course, um, back in the 1970s, there were still regular all through the night sittings and, uh, and it was very uncompromising to, to, to anybody, including a new mother. 
Now, today, the hours have improved. We sit until 10 o'clock on a Monday, 7 o'clock on a Tuesday and Wednesday, and 5 o'clock on Thursday. But you don't have nearly so often the late-night sittings and certainly not the through-the-night sittings. And that's a big improvement for for women in, in politics and women considering going into politics. I think it wasn't until Judith Hart became a cabinet minister in the late 1960s that you had a woman in the cabinet who had children. That's 50 years after um, women first got the vote and were able to stand for, 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 for parliament. So certainly I think in those early decades it was very hard for women to combine um, political leadership and having a family. Uh, most recently, on the 29th of January this year, baby leave was, um, or um, proxy voting was introduced so that uh, new parents could appoint a proxy to vote in their absence. And uh, Tulip Sadiq, the Labour MP for Hampstead and Kilburn, was the first MP to take advantage of that. Uh, but when we had some crucial votes on um, on Brexit-related issues uh, just last month, we had three MPs all exercising proxy votes, Luciana Berger, Tulip Sadiq and Darren Jones, whose wife had given birth the day before. And so that innovation, I think, will make it a little bit easier for uh, MPs to combine um, being parents and being um, uh, good MPs. And it will ensure as well that, um, that our voting records... Um, are not blank for the period of time that um, we're off work after having babies. And this is something that is really important to me. I've had two children since I was elected in 2010. Um, For both those periods of maternity leave, my voting record was blank. Uh, My constituents were not represented in the way they should have been in votes. Now, I would have been paired for those votes, so it wouldn't have affected the results. But I think it is important that all constituencies have representation uh, in Parliament, and like in other jobs, because, you know, politics, although it's different... It's not exceptional, and there's no reason why in politics you can't have maternity and paternity cover uh, uh, that you would have in any other job and in any other workplace. I'm really glad you mentioned Darren Jones there, because I, I, we've been talking about these things as women's issues, but of course things like parental leave, and um, I know Laura Pidcock said that when she goes into Parliament it's it can be intimidating as a woman, but also as a working-class woman. It's got a very specific set of conventions, so... We should stress that breaking down these barriers helps everyone. It's not just a woman's concern. Yes, absolutely. And I would like to see uh, you know, flexible parental leave so that um, men and women can take it on the same uh, basis or uh, um, a, a system of you know, use it or lose it um, parental leave to really encourage men to also take time off work after the birth of a, a, a child and you know we could do more to lead on that in parliament because you know parliament is legislated for um, you know maternity and paternity leave across the economy and, and rightly so but we haven't actually done what we preach in our own workplace just to finish off i wondered if we could come back to alice bacon um because of course you say quite rightly you take inspiration from all sorts of people men and women but bacon was a particular inspiration for you aside from going out and buying your book obviously what should people know about her in takeaway <laughs> well alice bacon um was elected in, in 1945 in the landslide uh, labor victory under clement hatley but she had been selected for what was thought to be a safe conservative seat and uh, and and i expect that um if it hadn't have 
if 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 Labour, if the Labour members of that local Labour party had expected um, a Labour MP to be elected, they might not have chosen Alice or indeed any other uh, young woman. But uh, uh, Alice became a, a member of Parliament on that uh, great landslide for uh, for Labour, an election that ushered in 24 women MPs, a trebling compared to the number at the previous general election. So it was a big breakthrough moment for for, for women in Parliament. And Alice came from a very humble background. She was the uh, only child of uh, of a coal miner from Normanton in West Yorkshire. And she went on to be a minister in Harold Wilson's government, implementing some of the most radical reform that a Labour government has ever uh, embarked on. The social legislation of um, uh, abortion law reform, uh, abolishing the death penalty and uh, legalising uh, homosexuality. And then as Minister for Schools, uh, she helped introduce comprehensive education. And that was Alice's big passion. Uh, she had taught at interwar secondary modern schools in West Yorkshire and described the de- double deprivation of children from um, poor uh, homes going to poor schools. And she believed that an excellent education should be uh, something that was by right, not just if you were lucky enough to get into a grammar school. And I know that that was her proudest achievement in government, uh, to uh, radically uh, increase the number of children at comprehensive schools and, uh, and end the 11 plus in so many communities. Wonderful. So plenty of inspiration to take from the past, things to fight for in the future. Rachel Reeves, thank you very much. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was Stephanie Boland there talking to the MP Rachel Reeves. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the discussion, then you can catch up on some of the individual pieces we briefly mentioned there on the Prospect website, which is just prospectmagazine.co.uk. Um, and also, if you've enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating or review, which does help other readers to find us. Um, and uh, that's it for this time. So do tune in again next week. And we look forward to seeing you then for the Prospect podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.